Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. If you tuned in this week, thank you for tuning in. I realize that my subject for this episode is a little unusual and maybe a little obscure, but I think this is going to be an amazing interview with you. Uh, David Heath Jr. is the uh, was the editor of a classic comics fanzine called No Sex. No Sex was one of the uh, smartest, most interesting, and uh, most wide-ranging of all the comics and science fiction fanzines of the late 1970s and early 1980s. It's called No Sex, as in no sex and all violence, and um, was really kind of filled with a lot of amazing cartoonists. Uh, David Heath himself was a... Uh, military vet um when i knew him he was serving as a uh captain in the u.s army at fort knox kentucky where we have our gold but um, as you'll hear in the interview he traveled all around the world as part of his military career all the while uh publishing and being involved in his science fiction fanzine um he published work by a number of really outstanding creators some of which you probably don't know some which um are still involved in comics fandom deeply in fact he uh, published some of the earliest work by Daniel Close, Jaime Hernandez, Gilbert Hernandez, and um, also by our good friend Clifford Meth, among many, many, many others. Um, there's great stories about Heath uh, driving up to his friend's houses in his giant Harley motorcycle, um, looking like a guy who's going to raise all kinds of hell, and then sitting down with his friends, getting out his pens and drawing these uh, just amazing uh, cosmological spaceships, uh, drawn in a really amazing uh, Von Bode's type style. Um, Dave was a freaking renaissance man, just an amazing person, and one of the most unique guys I've ever known. Um as you'll hear in the next uh, 90 minutes or so, um, Dave just had a lot of things, a lot of interests, a lot of things he was interested in, a lot of things he loved to talk about, and a lot of kind of areas that he just knew so much. Um, I wish that I had the chance to uh, share more interviews with him. Dave unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago, and we had planned to do a whole series of these and kind of do a, like a reminiscence of his work. And unfortunately, that kind of all dropped away in the midst of everything else he was going through at the time. Um, but Dave was a was a unique person, and this is really one of my all time favorite interviews I've ever done. Um, maybe ranks up there with the Jerry Robinson interview that I posted a few weeks ago, which you ha if you haven't listened to, I really strongly recommend. Um, so, without any further ado, I should tell you that uh, some of the audio quality on this is a bit tough. Um, there's some weird background noise and it didn't quite come off as well as I had hoped, but I didn't want to edit anything out of this. It's uh, pretty rare and special for me to have a chance to share my friend with you. And so, um, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. Running. It's right next to it. Wow. So you can set this up pretty quick. Oh yeah. Stuff like Frank Fazetta called you. You could just set up this quickly and be able to interview him. Damn right. He said, you know, you'd be talking. Well, he's saying, thanks for calling me, Mr. Frazetta. And since you're such a darn god, which he is. Yeah, he is. Such a god. Can I record you? And he's like, he would come off like his New York accent. I'm not thinking so. <laughs> you know who I talked to like this was Allison. It's like he would say, you know, if you gave me like $300, I might consider letting you record me. Yeah. Yeah, but don't expect me to do anything for you. I'll give you a tiny bit of my time. Yeah, it's like, you ask a question, I'm not going to, I don't think you're, you're in the dollar range. We have to negotiate for more money, 
or I'm not answering that question. Yeah, I'm too big time for you. Hey, Frank, Frank Pizzetta is big time. He is big time. I don't know what he did. <laughs> I draw a lot of great art, fantasy artwork. Yeah. Man, if you see something of his on eBay, don't get near it. Oh, yeah, are you kidding me? You know what that goes for? Hey, I do, because uh, my friend Jim Gray in Atlanta speculates in Frazetta art, and when I last visited him at his law office, uh, he had Frazetta uh, full pages hanging from his, uh, in, in his little... Oh, nice. That's Jim Gray, the man who sold the world or whatever? Yeah, he destroyed Mars. Yeah. The man who destroyed Mars. Yeah, he... Uh, he turned out okay, then. He's a lawyer, so he collects Frazetta. Sweet. But in fact, when I was in his office, he went on the internet and he took me to eBay. He said, here's some Frazetta stuff I'm looking at. And it was already up to like $10,000. <laughs> I was like, well, you know what? <laughs> and you would be just the same. I don't know where you are right now, but I would just be looking at that. <laughs> yeah. I would look at it. That's I, not it. I'd save the picture to my computer. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, there, And there's all kinds of stuff. It's just like uh, Bon Baudet. His stuff is just sells for everything. You know, any of these guys that, uh, you know, were back in the day, you know. Hey, Dave, did you get some Bode stuff around Christmas time? Yes. We had a thing on the group that we should all send you little gifts. Nice. Who sent that? Who mailed that? I, I think I got you the Bode stuff. Did you get some other stuff, too, kind of out of the blue? Oh, yeah, because I got, I got a package from George Lane a couple of days ago, and uh, I don't know, about three weeks ago. But just before I had to take off for the surgery, I got some stuff from George Lane. He was just kicking up. Sweet. Yeah, because you're gone but not forgotten, man. No, man, I appreciate that. It's true, because, um, let's see, Jim Gray sent me some Ace Double novels. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, that was like berserk. And uh, George sent me some Ace Double novels. Did you ever, you had to end up selling your collection, right? I ended up selling my collection. I didn't get as much as uh, I thought I should have gotten. I sold my collection at uh, Change of Hobbit, which is in Los Angeles, and it's a pretty famous uh, fantasy science fiction bookstore. So, and then that's when I discovered that uh, even though they'll sell you something for way over what it's worth, they won't give you anything. Totally. Or anything. Totally. Yeah, so, and the, the thing, I was very disappointed because my ace double novel, I actually came from all over the world. I, I was in Hawaii, and so like, about 30 of them came from bookstores in Honolulu. Uh, when I was stationed at Fort Lewis for a summer, uh, I, I combed Seattle. I forgot you were out here, that's right. I combed Seattle looking for back issue bookstores and found, found some interesting ones. So, most of the stuff I got came from the Los Angeles area. Downtown Los Angeles has a lot of back issue stores, back issue magazines and stuff like that. The only problem with Los Angeles, most of the stuff is actually pretty cruddy and, you know, not very presentable. Not the stuff that you find in someone's attic or something? Attic or in trash cans or something like that. You even had ad for double novels that you wanted in the back of the first issue of No Sex. You remember that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And as a matter of fact, when I got uh, D13, and I forgot where I got it, maybe in Los Angeles, but when I got... 13. In fact, I bought it off another guy in Los Angeles that had Cry Plague, which is actually a, a medical suspense thriller. Oh, they're not all science fiction? Mm -hmm. I thought they were all science fiction, but... Actually, the Ace Double novels 
started out as almost like a dime western or whatever. They just the big thing is they'd get a cover and have somebody write a story around the cover. Oh, okay. So when they got up to D13, they did that story, Cry Plague, which was a medical thriller. And some people didn't consider it science fiction, but once the Ace Double novels became collectible, they said, well, heck, that must be a science fiction, too. It's the first one. So, you know, that is a magazine that originally came out for like 35 cents. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, you can't find it anywhere for under 50 bucks. It's just, you know. They're just very cool books. Well, and the, and the thing, oh, yeah, and the, the thing is. The cover and the whole collection wasn't considered complete if you had didn't have D13 and, you know, a lot of other things going down. So when I finally got that one, I had the complete Ace Double Novel co collection, which, you know, to me, meant something, you know, that's uh, years of collecting and blah, 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 blah. And when I went to change a Hobbit, and I bought some of those double novels there, mm -hmm. they didn't look at it as a collection. And I came in with these boxes and boxes, and I said, well, these are, some of these are really nice. <laughs> and they, and some, you know, uh, the Android book <laughs> store or something, guy comes out, and he starts grading each one individually. Oh. And then... You know, and he has this little tin, and he comes up with a price that he knows is like, you know, if just by saying it to me, somebody should come and jack slap him mm -hmm. to the ground. But then, you know, just out of, for the sake of sanity, I said, well, you know, I tried to even out, because he was like, oh, give me uh, $213.47 for the lot. Make it. 250, you know, something like that. And so we came to an agreement, and he took them, and I was gone. And then I'm, I was just, man, give me a check, too. I mean, I had to figure out some way to cash it. And I'm driving my car thinking, boy, that's the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. That just kills me as a con collector to hear this. Yeah, it's like, what the heck was that all about? You know, I just sold a whole collection of Ace Double novels that it took me centuries to get together from all over the world, mm -hmm. the heck. But you need money, you need money, you know? Well, then I, that's it. At the time, you know, I didn't need money, but money would have been nice. Yeah. You know, it's just, I just don't see how people collect comics, you know, and then go out and these dealers just rape you. And then, like Jim Gray had uh, a lot of the uh, original Flash, mm -hmm. you know, dime comics. But the problem with his were that he had read them. Oh, yeah, and there goes the condition. So he had early Superman, he had Flash, so he was into that stuff. But uh, I went, I actually went to a convention with him where he was showing them around. I, he wasn't like, I've got this, I want $100 for this. I mean, he was just like, what do you think about this? Uh, what do you think about this? You know, these the uh, dealers that were on display were just you know they're very coy. They you know yeah they got out their overpriced guys and stuff. You know like oh, okay, but you know this is not going to work. You're not going to be a happy camper. He just take up his box. Says okay, okay, and go to the next one. Uh -huh. uh, you know I'd be walking with him. Says what's up with this? No, it's the worst field in the world for getting money for comics. I mean yeah. you never can. I, that's why I, I try not to spend more than 10 bucks for a book no matter what. 
Because it's worthless. You know, there's no point in even trying to resell it. No, aren't there? There are some people that must get some money on their stuff, or they wouldn't be, you know, listing these things in overpriced guide. It's, it's worth this or that and the other. I think people just keep selling it to each other. Yeah. I mean, some of them are worth worth something. You know, if you got a fantastic four number one, it's gonna be worth something. But yeah, it's gotta be worth something. But if you just have some average comic, I mean, it's not gonna be worth jack. Yeah. That's and that's what he discovered. And although looking at some of the stuff he had, I thought, well, this has got to be worth some money. And yes, there are some signs of wear because you read them. I mean, it's not that that you know somebody bought them back in 1930 and put them in plastic. That didn't happen. But yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just very depressing. I never was a lot into uh, the comic book collecting scene. Every time I see people, it's like. How they can stand it. Yeah. I don't even think about what it's worth. I just think about how nice it is to have my runs or whatever. People, yeah, the people that work are like. Spider Man. Early, early Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man. Oh, and yeah. They would say, hey, one day I'll go to a dealer here in Atlanta and see what it's worth. And then he, uh, at one point he called me and he's like, oh, I'm all depressed. What's, uh, what's the matter? Oh, I took my Spider Man to a dealer and he just dissed me out. Did he? Okay. Oh man, he's for the commercial. Anyway, that's uh... Well, you know what's worth it is old zines. Really? Well, they should be. They should be, you know? How hard is it to find a lot of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's where we live in. Uh, you know, a lot of the gang have comic books. I don't know. Maybe they should get together and form a comic, old used comic consortium. That's the way they can maximize their their take when they finally do sell what they have. I don't even know if I ever want to sell them. You know, mm-hmm. when I die, I want to give it to my friends or something. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, no one would ever get what they're really worth. A lot of the issue I have, and I've tried to do in the past, is like you say, when you still sell it to your friends or sell it to somewhere, someone you know. If I have to sell something like the Ace Devils, then I would rather have sold it to a friend or somebody so that I could go back and see them. Yeah. Uh, here's what's what. In fact, I almost got caught up in a loop like that because when I went to Atlanta to visit Jim Gray, I took my old uh, PS magazines, which is oh, yeah. a maintenance magazine. And I, all the ones I have are all the uh, uh, Eisner issues. Oh, yeah. Covering some of the inside art. And, and I had him at a convention once, and some guy came up and, said, and looked at each one. I mean, he spent an hour at my table. I think Streeter was there, too. And he spent an hour at my table looking at each one. And then he said, you know, you've got about 150 of these. I said, that's about right. He says, and every one is an Eisner issue. Uh, and some of them have uh, Murphy Anderson art. Yeah. It's like, well, that's... <laughs> that's the, charm of those PS magazines that they have some of the uh, old comic artists that do, do artwork for them. Some of them were even in the army when they did the artwork. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, said, well, that's nice. I'd like to have them all. I said, oh, really? Said, How much you want? I said, How about a dollar a piece? That'd be like $140 or something like that. Yeah. A dollar a piece of PS magazines that they usually um, anywhere you have to pay five or so. I said, wow, that's a little bit of money. 
Yeah, you know, I'm not the one standing here saying I'd like to buy them though. <laughs> I already have them. So, yeah. <laughs> like, in a, if you give me a dollar piece, just cash money, you can take that box and you can step. Uh huh. But the issue is, you give me $140, I don't have any more PS magazines, and you have PS magazines, what's up? <laughs> you know, you talk to some of these guys. Okay. Yeah, like you have endless stacks of them, yeah. And then, you know, he'll say something like, they're not in plastic, or, you know, like, I, you know, I dislike people who say they're not in plastic. Yeah. Yeah, like, you're going to do that, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, I don't know. I just can't get into that. Like, if, if you ever thought you were going to sell something, or you're going to speculate, or you're going to, it's an investment to you, then you should take care of your investment. Yes. Yeah, if it's an investment, it's not just something you bring for fun. Yeah, so then it wasn't. I, when I started collecting PS magazines, I was at Fort Knox, where they published PS magazine, and I didn't start collecting them for, you know, an investment. I collected them because I liked the artwork, and I thought they had some historic significance, mm -hmm. especially if I'm not real Eisner art and all that kind of stuff. In fact, the, uh, the guy who was the editor at the time when I was at Fort Knox, actually had some some original art. Oh, wow. I said, wow, that would be neat. I'd like to have some of those things. Said, oh, you know, that's just trash. Like, what? Right. I want to say, you know, some people would actually pay good money for this stuff, because I wanted it. Hell of a good money for that stuff. We never got together to come up with some kind of agreement that uh, how I could get some of that original art. I would love to have had some. I would spend a lot for Eisner original art. Yeah, I, I would have loved to have some. Or Murphy Anderson, especially Eisner. Exactly. And, you know, and the issue is he's had that stuff there for so long. And, uh, yeah. But the other thing is, you know, PS Magazine still comes out. But, you know, the, the artists are all basically, you know, average commercial artists. Mm -hmm. They have nothing, you know, no, no character or anything like that. So Dave, if I'm taping this, I may as well ask you about no sex. I ask away. So how'd you get started doing it? Well, April 1974, almost 30 years ago. Yeah, the uh, the thing about it is that I used to do a lot of drawing and uh, practicing, you know, drawing faces and other things that probably just about everybody does. Is interested in that, you know, you, you look at a comic book or something like that, or, or you know, something from the newsstand. And you just draw and draw and draw. At, at some point, I thought, you know, I start, should start collating this, this stuff together in some format. Now, at the time that that issue came out in 74, I was like a freshman at, uh, let's see, where was I? And I started at the University of Hawaii. So I started to collate a bunch of stuff together. I came up with the name. I think at that time I had just started corresponding with Klaus Hosh, and we started this joke about uh, all violence and no sex, <laughs> and that's where the title came from. And so I kept going around. At some point, uh, I transferred from the University of Hawaii at the end of my sophomore year, and I went to the University of San Francisco. One of the first things that was on my to-do list was to get all this stuff together and see if I get it printed up. So, being a college student without a job, 
I, and I was on ROTC scholarship, which meant they paid my 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 full way, mm-hmm. and uh, they also gave me a hundred dollars uh, a month as uh, per diem for eating and whatever, which is decent money at that point. Yeah. So I had a uh, like a chip or an account that I could take to the bookstore at uh, USF and get things like books and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I found out after about two hours of we talking, the person who ran the accounts there, that I could get printing done off of that account, which means that I could print this stuff up for free. The reason that issue is all orange and weird looking is because they were using a process of printing called electrostatic offset. So one thing that I was doing or came of interest to me is I was really becoming interested in a printing process, the offset process, uh-huh. printing off of a, you know just the office printer and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she took me to the back, showed me this darn printing press they had. And I said, boy, this is pretty weird. Uh, yeah, and it can print on different color paper. Okay, what what can you set me up with, and will I be able to put it on this account? I said, yes, you can put it on account, and I, I think I printed off like 150 copies. So I said, I'll bring in the artwork in tomorrow, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, do do what you can, and we'll see what can happen. Anyway, I brought the artwork in the next day, and by the end of the week, I came in. And gave me this thing. All right, this is going to the Army. <laughs> this is the account cheat goes to the Army. They'll pay for it. I think uh, they charge like four, 400 some dollars, short of $500, to do 150 copies. Huh. And this was in the day when uh, you had the uh, postal offset and all these companies were just starting up. And I think Kinko's was just starting as well. So you know, I've never done any anything with those kind of companies. But she gave me a bunch of boxes that were basically the pages uncollated. They were just in boxes. There might have been three or four boxes. Oh, yeah. So, the, the other thing is, back in then, I didn't drive. I rode a 10-speed to school. Uh-huh. Uh, my parents, uh, my father station at uh, Presidio in San Francisco. And the University of San Francisco was like three miles away downhill. So all I had to do was get on the 10-speed and coast down to school. That was pretty cool. So you had to bike around with all these papers. Yeah, and I was thinking, man, I didn't have a rack or anything. I was like, I'm going to get these darn things home. And actually, I took uh, about three trips of just walking the boxes up the hill. And the last trip uh, I had finished, so I just rode my bike home like I normally do. So then that night, uh, my mom was home. What's in these boxes? And I said, artwork. <laughs> okay, and she's just used to me drawing into the, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. I just got in my room and just collated them. And then I was thinking like, oh man, so now what I'm going to do with all these? And then, so all my family got a copy. And I started mailing them to people like Klaus, you know, people I had just met. Pretty, pretty interesting. And, uh, and your brother and sister both did work on it too, right? Again? Your, your brother Ricardo and your sister both did work on it too, right? Yeah, exactly. My brother uh, kind of followed me like a little puppy dog and would draw. Uh, and he drew a couple of things, so, you know, as I was collecting stuff, he just gave me a, one, a pager that he had done. My sister writes, in fact, my sister uh, wanted to grow up to be a script writer for movies. She studied 
photography at uh, USC. And anyway, she wrote a uh, serial, you know, like a novelette or something. Yeah. Art. And so I put uh, part one of that in there. So, you know, you have your family, you have your family, you may as well let them have a, have a taste. Had you seen a lot of fanzines before that? Again. Had you seen a lot of fanzines before that? It sounds like you just mostly had buddies, not a lot of zines to go by, you know? No, I, I did. Uh, and what what the story was, my brother Mike, who now lives in Atlanta, uh, got into collecting comics. He's the one that had the Spider-Man comics. Uh-huh. And he bought, he subscribed to the Buyer's Guide. And when he finished with it, he let me have it. And so I'd look through it. Uh, the, the main thing that got me going, I think, got me started with the ads other people would have, like, uh, for, for their fanzines, Unreal and all these uh, different fanzines. Everybody had a fanzine, had an ad in uh, the Buyer's Guide. So at some point, the ads were so cheap, I said, oh, heck, I will add get an ad out myself for my, my uh, fancy and I did Truba and sent it in and they printed it and, I, and to me that was almost like getting published <laughs> yeah get an ad in the, the buyer's guide it was almost like you know running a fancy you're right there yeah you're in a, yeah I, that's my name I drew this that's me I did that I drew that so if you like draw your own ad or cut and paste from your issue or you know have somebody else draw for your ad you know, and after I did my ad maybe two or three times, not only did I get people asking for, you know, the next issue, but uh, I got people asking for me to draw their ads. I'm like, wow, should have charged money for that or something. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of people. So anyway, there were a couple of guys that had fancies like Dan and Paul Watson, some of Steve Streeter. You know, they'd write, you know, you want to draw some artwork for my magazine. It's like, why not? Let's do it. Let's get going. And it, it, one issue that was uh, very important to me was to get to draw the cover. Uh-huh. I wanted to draw the cover. So somebody write me once you draw some artwork, and I'd send them a few pieces or extra laying around. I said, how about a cover? Let's think of a cover idea. I always send somebody a, how about a cover idea? I must have sent you one of those letters. I think so. Yeah. How about a cover? I'm good. I was obsessed. Everybody gets you had a portfolio one that has no, no sex issues with like four pages of just covers used for other zines. I had so many that had not been published or I'd done something and uh, they sent them back, they rejected them. They got rejected. They rejected <laughs> How could they reject me? How could they reject me? How could a fan scene reject me? But yeah, you can get rejected, then you, you have to do something with them. So, because I wasn't professional. Yeah. But anyway, uh, two came out uh, basically as a result of all that in, uh, on the heels of one and the response to one. The other issue was I had to learn how to publish it. Since, uh, by the time two came out, I, was, I didn't have privy to that, that process. One, and I wasn't really happy with the way number one came out. But two was full size, front and back, done at like Kinko's or something. Mm-hmm. And the cost was probably more than I would have wanted to spend. But then when they came out, I was like, I thought they looked pretty good. 
Yeah, it looked much better. The second issue looked much better than the first issue. Yeah, and uh, especially since it was full size, because you know a lot of the fanzines were reduced, uh, reduced offset. And it's like, why do they do reduced offset? I always wondered why people did that until I saw the difference in the cost. That was a cost issue. Oh, is that what it is? It's a cost issue. Okay. Definitely a cost issue. But anyway, uh, too little costly. I had to pay for it myself, and it was full size offset by you know one of the old offset printing houses, you know, a Kinkos or a, a Bell Press or a Postal Press or whatever. Mm-hmm. And probably just down the street from the school. Three was a whole different story. Same old stuff, collecting artwork. I think I drew the cover to it, and I drew the lead story, so the cover was from the a feature from the lead story. But by this time, I had been corresponding with Klaus a lot. And uh, at some point, he came up with the idea of trying to get uh, an issue published. And, you know, he was putting out his own fanzine. And um, Klaus had a personal copier. And this, uh-huh. is, okay. this is when we were dabbling mostly in uh, IBM XT, the 286, stuff like that, and back in those days, the printers for, for personal computers were dot matrix, and they weren't very good. Right. Bob had a copy machine, and it was called, I don't forget the brand, but it was called a personal copier. I thought this was the neatest darn thing in the world. Uh, I actually oh, yeah. went to this house in Indianapolis, and, uh, you know, I saw this thing, and he put something, a drawing in it, and, and reproduced it about 30 times right in front of my face. I'm like, man, how could somebody have a copier in his own house? Uh-huh. Anyway, after that, he uh, mentioned that he might be able to print those X3. And he said, you know, I need some seed money for materials. And I think it was like to get 300 issues. It was like 100 bucks. Oh, Compared to, you know, three or four hundred dollars a year. And then I said to him, like, well, I think it was in the letter, writing letters. And in the letter I said, you know, what you say sounds very, very good. But I think that I'm a little, you know, concerned that, you know, if you're going to do this on your personal copier, I'm not sure that that's what I'm looking for, you know. And he came back, no, 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 I have a friend of mine that, that has access to a print shop. You do that in a print shop, then we're talking about something totally different. dollars I can get 300 issues. You know, that sounds better. Yeah. Okay, why don't you send me the, you know, the raw material, and we can see what we can do. All right. So I sent to him, and he wrote me back. He got it. His friend's name is Mark Tatman, and he is in, uh, I guess, he was in the University of Indiana, and he was taking printing, and even though they had that as a course, printing. But anyway, as his midterm, he has to print a project, and what he's going to do <laughs> is print those X3. How great is that? Huh? How great is that? Uh, really great, because the, the money that I sent was part of the student fees that he has to pay to have access to the printer, which I said, you know, well, it sounds like a deal to me. We do this, and fine. So, uh, there was a deadline set for when he'd have it and have it out. He had some issues out for me. And that went, and uh, that passed. 
and you know, a letter to him, what's going on, and Mark's having some problems. I said, okay, problems I understand. You know, I've done this myself. But, like, what what I wouldn't understand what would happen sometimes, like if they lose your artwork or something, or lose your, you know, they lose your material. Right. Like I said, if you're going to have a lose your material thing, then let me know now so that when I go postal, <laughs> I yeah. don't post it at the wrong time or in the wrong place. I bring my machine gun to the right place. <laughs> it's like your worst nightmare come true. Telling you. So anyway, so we made arrangements where we would talk by phone and discuss the issue. And we did talk by phone. He said, ah, just, you know, when things are going slow, he still he has to do the project to get his grade in that uh, class. So it's not like he's trying to blow us off. Well, things are happening. So, all right, I'll be understandable. So, what's going to happen? Said, well, by the end of this month, I don't remember what month it was, we'll have you 150 copies of, of that issue, you know, and blah, blah. So, we're going to have the other 150. Well, he's going to print them in a, in a batch. So, if he can, uh, he can get the first 150 to you within this time frame, and we we'll get the other 150, you know, we'll tell you when they're going to come. Now, that's Andy Danny. So, you know, at some point for the end of the month, the package came to my house, opened it up, and there are those salmon cover, salmon cover covers. That's right. That, uh, it's book stitch, so the, the, the cover is actually a wraparound cover, and the rest of it is stitched into or stapled into the, uh, the wraparound cover. So, that was more than I was expecting, because I didn't say anything about the color of the cover or anything like that. Basically, they just took what I gave them and, and, and did a pretty good print job on it. And I, I've always thought that that was one of the best issues of my amateur fancy. It was a big issue, too. It's like 64 pages. It's a big issue. You know, a lot of that stuff... Look at these scans I made. So it's right here on my fingertips. sociology class and this and that at the University of Hawaii when I was drawing that strip and using a lot of half tones. And by the way, from uh, from the buyer's guide, mm -hmm. you see people's ads and you see a lot of artwork and you notice uh, the half tone. And, and I, I was asking somebody, I think somebody in the group, how does people get those neat little dots in their drawings? Right. <laughs> so you don't know about half tone sheets? I went to Michael's and they had halftone sheets and I became learned in using it. I had to get an exacto knife and a, one of those pressing things, a little yeah. plastic pressing thing. And while I was there, they also had press-on letters. So I got press-on letters and uh, I did use them in some of the, I think in three there's some press-on letters. It looks good though. You drew the sea serpent. It's got that nice tone on it. I became one of those half-tone guys. In fact, I became obsessed with the uh, moray effect. You ever seen two half-tone sheets when they're laid on top of each other and you turn them a little bit? You get that kind of weird moray effect with the swirls and the patterns. Oh, yeah, yeah. I became obsessed with that. You got a lot of people in those issues, too. There's Klaus, Jim Gray, Matt Fiesel. Matt Fiesel. And Jerry started in that issue. Jerry? Jerry Collins. Yeah. He even had Dave Mazzuccelli who ended up drawing Daredevil. Mm. Yeah, then uh, 
by issue four, I became obsessed with the idea that you should be able to do your fanzine on a computer, print it out, and then this will lower your cost, I thought. Uh, but as I say, in that time frame, the only kind of printers they had that were affordable to an average person were dot matrix. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're not worthy of printing artwork or anything like that, but it, it became an obsession with me. It, it doesn't look too bad, though. Oh, my goodness. I went out, learned about, bought, you know, I bought the, in fact, I bought the user's guide to an XT. It was called User's Guide and Repair Manual for an XT, IBM XT. I read that and became pretty well entrenched on what a standard, you know, IBM computer would be. You know, you have the clones out there, but the clones are supposed to, you know, perform to a standard. It ought to be able to drop a floppy in, and, and, and all the thing, you know, hard drive. So at some point I went into the, to the, the, the trader, uh, and I was living, where was I, in Los Angeles. Somebody was selling an XT. In fact, he was selling it for like $75. Mm -hmm. well, what's wrong with this thing? Yeah, so I was over there like in a skin. And it was a professor at U UCLA. And he had just bought an AT or a 286. So some he'll need some of the seed money from his XT to, you know, to cover that expense. So he went through it, blah, 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 and it had like a, a Seagate 10 gig, a 10 meg hard drive in it, so it didn't have much uh, much capacity and it didn't have much memory, but it worked. And uh, oh, that was pretty big in 1977, though. Yeah, it's, it's pretty big. And it went through its paces, it did what it's supposed to do. I think it had like WordPerfect and WordStar on it, which were both the programs that, that you had to have. And at, and at the time, I had an Apple II Plus. Mm, I remember those. Yeah, I had an Apple II Plus. I was doing just about everything on that, and I was using the program VisiCalc, who I just, like a year ago, learned was uh, written by a guy from Get Much, much play from it. He didn't patent it. But the one thing about VisiCalc is basically it had a spreadsheet in it. So the guy who did uh, Lotus One Two Three that he used that as a, as a template. He used VisiCalc as a template. On my Apple II Plus, I used VisiCalc for everything. Huh. I used it as a work processor, I used it as a spreadsheet, and I used it as a database, because it was that flexible where you could, like you could take one cell, widen it to the size of the screen, and just type a letter. That sounds so old school, man. Yeah, it was old school. <laughs> I guess it was, yeah. But the issue was that I had to get uh, uh, Wintel machine, <laughs> an IBM clone, so I could get into more conventional programs. Uh -huh. I did, and I, I bought it from him, and he wanted to he wanted to take out the hard drive, saying, "Well, you can't use the hard drive because it's only set for what I want to do." Hey, whatever, but uh, I don't think that's true. Because I had read this book on the IBM XT, I knew a lot about it, and I'm like, you know, this is not really damn thing. If something personal on it you don't want me to see, erase it, you know, and we'll just go from there. Anyway, he did uh, spend about 20 minutes with it, 
Mixter's laboratory. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know if he erased his personal accounts from it or something like that, but, you know, so I carried it out to the car to get home, and basically that started my life as crime because I became a, a, a IBM clone guy as opposed to an Apple II Plus. Shortly after that, I sold my Apple II Plus. But luckily, I was able to keep my NEC 8071 printer, which I had on the Apple, and it worked better on the IBM. So, I, and I think from four on, I did try to put some of the stuff from the computer into the issue, which is okay, because the, the typewriter I had been using to type text for no sex was very weird in that it only had capitals. Even in lowercase, it was still capitals. They were just smaller. And actually, I thought it was kind of cool, but unless I had a nice clean ribbon in it, it looked like crap. I loved that. That was like around no sex nine or so. You had a lot of that. Yeah. That's like totally nostalgic for me, man. So you you had no sex three came out in '74 or so, and there was like three years gap until number four came out, and you put out a whole bunch in a row. And I guess. When you put out number four, your it's, it had APO New York as your address. Is that because you, did you have all that time off because you had just gotten inducted and you were getting used to Army life, or what happened? The whole time from 1970 to 1974, I was going to college, and in college I was on ROTC scholarship where the Army paid my way. I graduated from the University of San Francisco in 1974, in June of 1974, and I was inducted into the Army as a second lieutenant uh, right after that graduation on like June the 6th, 1974. So, I don't know, about a week, the Army sent me to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, to Ranger School, where actually I asked to go to Ranger School, and so that's when they assigned me. I got to Ranger School uh, in like October, in the first couple of weeks, I, I was assigned to the finance office of Fort Benning, Georgia, and I helped process people's paychecks just because I had a college degree. Oh, yeah. That's just like the funniest darn job in the world. You know, guys would come, let me get my paycheck, and this happened or that happened. It's like, blah, blah, whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, so I just went through that. And finally, my ranger school time came, and I went, you know, to the ranger school. And uh, that was an experience. I went to the, what, what they call a winter school. So uh, sometimes I'd be sleeping in the snow. We would cross rivers, and they would be freezing. And oh, man. Cold and wind blowing. And one of the most horrible times of my life. But uh, I got through it. The last day, standing in the rain, the sergeant pumps the, the, the little tab on me. It has a thumbtack or something to it, and he pounds it on your shoulder, you know, as, as part of the, the macho, you know, initiation ritual. Pounds on your shoulder so you feel the, the pinch of that little pin, and then you're a ranger. And I think one of the reasons I went to airborne school and ranger school is just to show my father, you know, who was a Green Beret, that, uh, that, I, that I had the cojones to stay up with him. Uh-huh. But so I did that. And then in, uh, I think graduation was late December, and then into January, I was assigned to go to uh, Germany. I was assigned to Baumholder, Germany, which is in the uh, southern part of Germany. And one of the, one of Baumholder's claims to fame is that it was one of Hitler's tank 
gunnery range. Uh -huh. This is where he trained his tankers. And of course, I was an armor officer, so you know, they got to send me to an armor assignment. So I got there. Um, my father met me at the airport in Frankfurt. My father was already in Germany on, on assignment, and he was still in the army. And I spent a week with him, and then he sent me to my unit, one of his chiefs. Got there. Colonel was there. So was Lieutenant, it's about time you showed up. My father, the command sergeant major over at Third Brigade, delayed me. <laughs> That's all right. We know your father. He's been in touch with uh, Command Sergeant Major Wolf. Command Sergeant Major Wolf was the Command Sergeant Major of my unit. And he came in and we chatted. Yeah, I'm an old buddy of your dad. Whatever, clown. But <laughs> so, I'm like, sir, um, I would like to just get quarters and, and you know, get on with my assignment. Said, That's what I like to hear, soldier. So you get your quarters later, go to the post and get your bachelor quarters. So your unit in the field. So if you're ready, get you out there and you can start doing your thing as an armor lieutenant. It's like whatever, you know. Uh -huh. So he put me on a helicopter. <laughs> they were out, you know, doing war games and flew me out to some place and then I at some point I noticed it was snowing a lot. And there was deep snow, and the helicopter landed in some field, and stupid one officer threw my duffel bag on the ground, and he said, see those tanks over there? Yes, Chief, I see them. Said, those are your tanks. <laughs> All right, Chief, thank you. All right, I'm out of here. I'm like, well, let me get off of it. Watch those blades. <laughs> uh -huh. I jumped off the helicopter, and he was gone. And so I took up my duffel bag and walked to the tank. Uh, sergeant came out and said, are you he's sir? Yes, I am. Well, this is 3rd platoon of Charlie Company. This is your platoon, sir. Roger that, Sergeant. What's going on? We're in a defensive position waiting for the enemy. I said, okay, Sergeant. But that doesn't sound like United States tankers. United States tankers go find the enemy. Mm -hmm. This enemy is supposed to be coming from. Well, they say they'll come down this road here and probably be simulating rush T-62. Simulating rush T-62. Whether we have like an outpost out there or any anybody out there waiting to see if they're coming, they're going to phone you back when they're coming. No, sir. So, you know, take a couple loaders off of a couple of these tanks, put them out on that road with a radio, and if they see anything, bigger than a rabbit hopping down that road. I want smoke on it, <laughs> and then I want us busting caps. What kind of caps have we got, by the way? Oh, we're firing simulated rounds. Oh, this sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And I'm right, Sergeant. Tell me something. Say, what do people do about this freaking snow? <laughs> like, if you want to get some sleep, well, the aftermen are resting right now in the hammocks. Uh, you know what? Just out of curiosity, I'd like to see that. He took me back behind the tanks, and there were guys that had hammocks slung between trees, and they were asleep, and there was snow on top of them. Oh, man. So the, the last thing I had to say to that sergeant was, where's my tank? <laughs> Where is my tank? You mean a command tank, sir? Yes, I mean a command tank. He took me to my tank, I climbed up into it, got into this commander's hatch to find three of the rankiest 
you know, <laughs> one sleeping soldiers I'd ever met in my life. So I just got in there and closed the hatch and noticed they had the heater going full blast. That was good for me. And I got on top of the gun tube because I'm kind of small. I'm 5'7", but I fit precisely on the gun tube and I could sleep right there. And I said, oh good, no sleeping in a hammock between trees. <laughs> With snow beating down on you. No snow coming down on me. I hate the snow. But, you know, I got up, I, you know, put on my little wool pullover and got on the, the tank of gun tube and fell asleep. And then, after about 30 minutes, the gunner, who's off to the right down below, but he has uh, controls to the the main gun and he has sights he can look out but I had told him if this gun tube moves while I'm sleeping on it <laughs> I'm a dead man me and you are going to have some problems look closely I'm a lieutenant you're a sergeant do not smash me into the hull of this tank by moving this gun tube yes sir yes sir but while I was asleep I heard in my sleep enemy tank ahead now I'm supposed to say something to him when he says something like that. So I'm like, wiping my eyes, I get up, I go into my commander's cupola, and I look out with my binoculars, and lo and behold, there's like a 113, a personnel carrier, coming down the road, down the road. Uh-huh. And I go like to my loader, who's just a private. His job is to put bullets in the main gun so that the gunner can shoot him, or I can shoot him. We both have the same controls. And I go to the loader, and we hear nothing on the radio from the stupid outpost I have to be put out there, or these guys just coming right in here, and nobody's saying nothing. I don't know, sir. Well, just hang on a minute. I mean, these guys were all doofuses. Uh, Most of them had just rotated from Vietnam, because uh, Vietnam was winding down. So they either sent you home, or they sent you to Germany. They were all just doofuses. So I called the higher headquarters. I'm like, higher headquarters, I've got armored vehicles moving down some road. <laughs> like, they're like, Roger's that. We think the enemy is moving into our defensive position. I'm like, do I have permission to engage? I didn't add the, you know, the ob obligatory, I'm new here, what the hell's going on? Uh-huh. And he says, you have permission to engage. Said, Roger, out. And so I told the loader, you know, how can we pretend we're going to shoot at these people? Well, I can load a blank round, and then you can give the command to the gunner, and then he can fire. So, well, loader, sounds like you have a good good track on this. So I said to the, put up my, on the whole crew on my radio, I'm going to open my hatch. Now, I'm telling you, because when I open my hatch, it's going to get cold in this tank. <laughs> it's going to start getting cold in this tank. Uh -huh. But prepare for engagement. And the gunner goes, I'm ready right now. Stand by, soldier. Looked out there, and now there was like three or four of them stupid things on the road. So I took the controls and moved the gun to, to the second one. That way he would block the road and the first one would get all crazy. Mm -hmm. He'd look behind him and I'd blow up the second one already. But they have indicators, when, like laser indicators. I have a laser indicator on my tank. So when my laser hits them, it tells them you've been hit. 
and then they'll have a grader and evaluator near them and they say you have to stop you've been hit by somebody okay well i said gunner heat tank which is you know telling the gunner but ammunition and this is weird i'm looking at the news and they're showing a tank destroying the warner's brothers lot i don't know if this was done like in mistake or what, but it's an M60 tank, the same tanks I used in Germany, M60A1. Why is that thing... That's freaking bizarre, Dave, talking about this at the same time. And then all of a sudden I see a tank, yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is weird. Yeah. By the way, I should say I have like 20 minutes left on this tape I have here. Right? All right, well, anyway, we blew the first tank quote-unquote apart and then I hit the next one and uh, you know the higher headquarters called and says give me a sit rep situation for what's going on well we got the advanced team of enemy tanks coming in our location we just destroyed four of them we did not destroy the first one and uh, basically we're here standing by with our balls in our hands you know <laughs> <more>. <laughs> whatever higher headquarters <laughs> you know and, and, and the thing about that was i was uh a brand new second lieutenant just got in from the states just spent one week with my father just got into the unit and got kicked into the snow oh. and so while i was in that tank and while we stopped that convoy i'm thinking to myself how am i going to get the next issue with no sex out <laughs> crap how am I going to get the next issue of no sex out? I think uh, if, it, if that stuff had APO New York or whatever, then I was in Germany because your address goes through a post office box in New York. If okay. Over in your overseas. As four, five, and six come on, uh, I for a month I actually researched uh, printing no sex in Germany. It would not have been impossible because Germany is very modern and very technically oriented. And they had off-press printing, commercial off-press, offset printing. Mm -hmm. So I could have gone there, spoken a little German, and, and they probably would have been able to do it. The only issue was that, you know, Europe uses different paper sizes in America. Right. America's standard is 8.5 by 11, and everything is based off of that. European standard is what they call A4. So you know, their envelopes are different. Their uh, everything's different. Right. Yeah, it's a little bigger. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger, and you'd have to do some calculations to to print off a, uh, a offset reduced, which is by then what I had gone to. But uh, stepping into the uh, the playing field with people like Jerry Foley and Steve Streeter, who offered to print the issues for me. All I had to do is get them the, the raw text. I think Foley did it first, but then I think Streeter did it for a couple of issues, and then Foley stepped back in. So he did a, Jerry did a bunch of stuff for you off and on. He did like the last three issues also. Yes, he did. Uh, and the issue about that is he had the, the material. I would send him a, the material in a big manila envelope, and then, you know, whatever problems he had, you know, he would have to slow down or speed up or whatever so a lot of those issues you know he might, he might have had like three issues 
at his home. As a matter of fact, when we got back together, he mm -hmm. told me that uh, No. 619 got got really messed up, and that he had not told me because he was he was very you know concerned that I might be distressed, and I got distressed. <laughs> well, I am distressed. So, as a matter of fact, I don't know what was in No. Sex 19. You mean a new issue that never came out? And, there, and something happened to it, uh, Jerry. And Jerry, Jerry was uh, ready to admit. You know, uh -huh. at first he didn't want to say anything about it. Then he said, "Yeah, I had it, and something happened. It's my fault." But you know, he was a cool guy, so I wasn't like freaking about it. But oh, I hope he can find it or whatever. Yeah, someday. But anyway, I, I right now I have a No Sex Net uh, 19 on my computer in Microsoft Publisher. So, you know, he has publisher and a couple other people have published. I can send it to anybody and it can be printed out. That's where I've been. I'm in that issue. So anyway. Uh, so did you feel like when all this was going on that you are kind of gaining momentum? Because, you know, looking at those issues, they just have more and more kind of positive energy to them. It seems to it, just get... Well, I think with, I think anybody would tell you that, uh, you know, publisher perish thing. Uh, if you get published, if you get an ideal out there, or you get a concept out there, it gives you momentum, yes, and it gives you uh, energy to move to the next thing. But the idea that this is going to see fruition, you know, it's going to be there quickly, makes, makes you creative. I know, like, there's a couple of issues that I really want to see, like, how this cover would look. I think there's a blue one. I don't remember if it's seven or six or whatever. Yeah, one of those. But I really like that cover. I really like drawing that cover because I, when I was drawing, I said this is going to be a cover. This is how the cover's going to be. And then, oh yeah, that's the satellite above the Earth and the guys working on the satellite. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. sick. And I said, this is how it's going to be. And what gave me more energy to go ahead and get it done and get the package together was the idea that at some point within a century, it's going to be printed. Uh, yeah. It's going to be printed. And like towards the end, where, you know, with uh, 16, 17, it's like things were happening so fast. At some point, I was kind of like disappointed. Like, I think I'm moving too fast. I'm not uh, being meticulous or I'm not setting a theme or what have you. And there was a lot of letters to Jerry, like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And really, I think he was just so happy to see him get out. He didn't have any thoughts. So it's like, Okay, whatever. But some of those issues are great, like 14 with that uh, space cover that Jim Gray drew. Uh-huh. That beautiful kind of spiral design. Yeah. That's just gorgeous, you know? You know, that, and, and it's, it's funny you mentioned that one. That one was, uh, was penciled by me and inked and airbrushed by Jim. Oh, wow. And... It was a concept we had actually talked about for several years. The thing about it is the relationship between me and Jim is, is so was so fickle that we would either collaborate very well or just come into a big argument about some minor detail. You know, we met when my father was stationed in Panama and I went to high school in Panama. His father was a civil engineer on the canal and you know, he just saw me drawing and like I was drawing for the school newspaper at Cristobal High School. And he would just, you know, clamp up on me and say, man, you're just so cool. Is this what kids do in the States? 
what are, you, what are you talking about? Well, we live here in Panama. We don't know what's going on in the States. <laughs> like, whatever. And then you show me his comic book collection and, you know, what he could get. It's like, okay, whatever. But he was just obsessed with, you know, what was going on back stateside because he spent his whole life in Panama. Yeah, he feel isolated. Yeah. So it was like, it was very, very weird. But what I had wanted to do a lot and never got to was uh, have him pencil something because he could draw a little bit and then me ink it. But the problem is he was such a type A perfectionist that I couldn't get him to, to pencil anything because he said, oh, this looks like shit. Yeah. And I was like, okay, whatever. Let you it go, dude, yeah. Yeah, you know, do a strip, let's get it going. But then he just had weird ideas, like he said, well, if I do this, I want to make sure it's like it's in style, like, because he was just so obsessed what's going on and what's the fashion, what's the thing. I don't want to draw anything that looks stupid, like, whatever. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> We're not professionals or anything. We're just drawing our own magazines. And yeah. Anyway, uh, when, when we rotated out of Panama, and we went up, we were in Reno for a little while, and then finally I got into college, blah, Hawaii, and then San Francisco. But, uh, you know, I didn't correspond much with him, but then I did write him, and I sent him, I, in the, of course, I had to send him no sex one. Mm-hmm. So he got, he got like, he was rolling on the floor over that. You publish your own magazine. And he just questioned me, just incessantly, about how I did it, what I did it, why did I do it, and just on and on, you know, just wanting to know everything. He said, you know what, I've always wanted to publish a fanzine about the Beach Boys. And I said, well, you know, you have a computer and you know how to draw and you have the tools of drawing and why don't you just do that? At some point he did do that, get a Beach Boy fanzine, which was, was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Bad. Cool. But uh, I've always wanted to get him involved more. And one of the, the projects was, is what ended up as that cover. He was a little bit different from me in that he would explore all kinds of different uh, art techniques or medias, and you know I always respected him for that. But at some point, he did something I was very interested in, that was airbrush. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to his house, and at that time he was living in the Florida Keys, and he had a little airbrush machine. And while I was there, he asked me to pencil something so that he could airbrush. He had some thought processes on masking uh, from from pencils. He said, well, I'll be glad to. Anyway, so I did a drawing of a spacesuit guy with a big gun walking on like a lunar sk- landscape, which I called uh, Recon. And he inked it. I never liked his inks because they were a little too broad. You know, okay. I like thinner uh-huh. His are, are really broad because he used a, a, a nib, like a number three nib. I'm like, wow, man, he really ruined my drawing. <laughs> but then, you know, as you're sitting there, what do you think? And it's like, <laughs> there it is. You know, I have a hard time telling people you suck. <laughs> uh-huh. Which got me in a lot of trouble with Klaus. Because, you know, he would draw, like I would go to his house and he would say, what do you think about this? 
like, well, you want to know what I think about that? <laughs> I really can't put much thought process into it because I just got here and just saw it. Klaus, what, what's up with that? <laughs> and I would say, you have a lot of talent. And I was like, man, he talks like a kindergartner. What's up with that? Hey, not everyone can be like, um, um, you know, Jerry Foley or, or even worse, like Willie Peppers or someone. Yeah, you know. You have a lot of really talent. Develop natural talent into something. Like Jerry is like something else. Like he was really bad a long time ago. But as he went along, man, he just became good. Mm -hmm. Man, what a guy. What a guy. You have a lot of good people. Uh, people who do good work for you. Big time. Big time. I mean, Geyer is number one on my list always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Foley became good. But anywho, he... Uh, airbrushed that thing and then as he was doing that I noticed it was on a, stick, a thicker stock of paper mm -hmm. oh that's why he put it on that kind of paper because I had problems penciling on it because I wasn't used to drawing on this this heavy stock the only good thing about it was it didn't have a, a glossy finish to it just you know, it was regular paper but it was a little thicker but anyway that made it easy for him to airbrush and it took him a long time to, to do what he wanted to do because in airbrushing you do a lot of masking and so he had to say okay I'm going to do the same color in all these situations so he masked oh thank you